Hey, so I'm going to keep today's really short and sweet. We are listener supported through Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash ontarioloud or ontarioloud.ca and hit that Patreon link, it will take you to a page that allows you to select a series of tiers of donation, some of them quite cheap, to support Ontario Loud on Patreon. The support helps us do more, reach audiences, buy ads, and most importantly, pay our volunteers who are the lifeblood of the show. And so do it. That's it for me. On to the show. Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs have between recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. And I'm Sam Andrew. And today we are returning to the subject of housing affordability, the housing market, and why it seems to be, well, frankly, a little messed up right now. Regular listeners will remember that we addressed this topic for the first time a few episodes back, where we talked about some of the housing challenges facing those who face precarity in the housing market and what looking at housing from a human rights perspective might look like. Today, we're excited to bring you another perspective on the housing issue and dive into the topic of home ownership, and specifically why, among young people, home ownership rates seem to be on the decline in this generation, with over half of young people feeling that home ownership will be unaffordable uh, in the place that they live. I certainly feel that way. So to talk about this, we are so excited to welcome Tim Hudak to the pod. Tim, of course, will be a familiar name to many of those who follow Ontario politics. He was an elected member of the Ontario legislature for uh, 21 years, including five as leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. Nowadays, Tim is the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, an organization that represents realtors to the province. He also hosts a weekly news show on News Talk 1010. Tim, welcome to Ontario Loud. Yeah, Chris, Sam, great to see you guys. Thanks for having me on Ontario Loud. And I, I do want to say, uh, Chris, I'm a big fan. I love what you did with Coldplay. And <laughs> I didn't know you had time to do the podcast <laughs> on the so side. So much talent. <laughs> the, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, the, the uh, music and <laughs> regional pol- political Venn diagram doesn't yeah. meet often. Yeah. And you totally like strip out the accent and everything. Like, it's very, very impressive. No, I'm really excited to be on. I got to ask you though, Ontario Loud. So is he like the, the cousin to Ontario Proud? Or are you related? What's going on with this? So funny, you are the first guest to pick up on the fact that it's a slight parody of um, well, then who the Ontario hell do you have on as guests? <laughs> Maybe they do pick up on it. They just don't mention it on air. But the. Um, but yeah, uh, it's a play on it for sure. Like, yeah. We, we obviously have no relationship but we thought uh, <laughs> Ontario Pride was very hot when we started in 2018 yeah so. yeah for sure oh, I liked it good name thank you um so uh Tim it's no secret that Ontario faces housing affordability crisis across the spectrum uh with a market that in many cases outpaces the ability of people to make money to buy homes uh Aurea has focused quite a bit on the supply of housing as an issue uh which the provincial government um has also touted so uh I'm curious just on a very basic level for listeners what do you think is the single biggest impediment to having uh, us having enough homes for all the people that need them? Uh, and what's the single biggest thing we could do to address it? Geez, big, uh, big question. So let me just do high level to start with. Maybe we can delve yeah, down those individual uh, aspects. And, you know, looking at your handsome face here on the podcast, your well-groomed beards, I'm guessing you're millennials. <laughs> yes. And the sad reality is millennials is, as you've heard, I mean, when it comes to housing, you're kind of generation screwed. Generation squeezed, if you want to be more polite about it. The the sad reality is that millennials look to be the first generation in Canada's history that may see declining home ownership. The, the success story of Canada is we built a strong, sustaining middle class. It's been the social fabric that's held us together, made the made Canada the envy of the world because every generation had a better shot at owning a home than the parents and grandparents. Like there's a straight, you know, up curve coming from Confederation 
until about three years ago that showed homeownership on the increase. What now has happened is that housing costs have outpaced incomes for millennials. And that means that this very talented, educated generation, if we can't get them into homes, if they can't get them into property in Ontario, are in jeopardy of packing up and going to other jurisdictions where they can. So the bottom line to your opening question, Chris, the, the main issue is we have not kept up housing supply with demand. And basic economics will tell you when supply is limited, the demand goes up, prices go up, and homeownership is slipping out of reach. And so one of the things that's always struck me as really intractable about this issue is like in a place like Toronto where you are seeing like in the urban centers where you're seeing these particularly acute challenges, um, the pace of the ability to change that fundamental supply question is pretty long term, pretty limited. What's like the number one thing you think we should be doing as a province to get enough to, to solve this, yeah, I mean, we'll get started, right? I mean, number number one is if you're if you're in a hole, you stop digging and you try to climb your way out one step at a time. Look, one of the other reasons we're in this is actually a, a set of good reasons. I mean, there are four drivers of demand. Really, are millennials, your generation, are doing better, getting promotions, you're moving up the ladder. Some are having families. So, what will be the largest generation in Canada's history because of immigration will be coming into the housing market or already there. Uh, number two, they often can be financed by the bank of mom and dad, who tend to have more wealth than previous generations. Third, fortunately, mortgage rates remain relatively low. So affordability when it comes to mortgage is much better than previous generations. Canada, rightly so, particularly the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, uh, is sort of the epicenter for immigration. People from every country around the world want to move here. That's a good problem to have. And also, our economy is, is functioning quite well. It's not going 100%, but... Compared to other places in North America, we're doing well. So those four things are driving up demand. That's a good problem to have, and one I don't see reversing anytime soon. The problem is we have an increased housing supply, particularly, as you said rightly, Chris, uh, in our urban areas, um, the Greater Golden Horseshoe uh, in particular. So what do you do? Well, you know what? We we did two things. Number one, I'm glad to talk more about it. The Ontario Realtors brought forward a campaign to call attention to political decision makers about this. It's called Keep the Dream Alive. Your listeners can still see it at keepthedreamalive.ca. And then secondly, we did our homework. We brought to the provincial government, it happened to be the, the PCs under Doug Ford that won that election, but whoever won, we brought forward 10 ideas on how to increase housing supply and choice in the marketplace to help make homeownership more affordable. Happy news is they did pass legislation recently that took eight out of those 10 ideas. So help is on the way. It just won't be overnight. So maybe picking up on that, some of your proposals sort of increase provincial authority over municipal authority, things around as of right zoning, for example. So, um, you know, you used to work for the in the province. I'm wondering at a high level what you see as the role of municipal politicians in all this and where responsibility should lie between the two levels. You know, there was a uh, premier of the province um, who used to always say that it's uh, it's always time to do the right thing or something like that. I think Mr. McGinty, in fact, I remember seeing him quite a bit in legislature throw that line. Uh, there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. Is that what he said? Yes. I um, so you know what? Uh, I think you always want to set up the framework. So municipal politicians who are closest to the people who understand the local geography and culture to do the right thing to increase housing supply. And there are plenty of good examples of that. You know, Hamilton, some things happening in Toronto, Ottawa with their LRT, Kitchener-Waterloo come to mind. But for those that, that don't act, then I think the province does because of this housing crisis we experienced. 
get into the game. As you know from your experience in politics, both both Sam and Chris, that the NIMBY forces can be significant. That people will say, yep, I want my son or daughter to have a house. I want to see more housing supply. Just not anywhere near me because right. I like you know where we are. A lot of our municipal zoning bylaws were set in the pre-disco era of the 1970s. They made sense for a different generation, different lifestyle, and smaller populations. Because municipal politicians often think about existing voters and not future voters, they are susceptible to nimbyism telling them to stop projects to shrink them, to slow them down. In those circumstances, I do believe the province of Ontario, looking out for the province as a whole and help create the next generation of Ontario homeowners, does play a role in forcing change if municipalities don't do it first. One of the aspects of your plan uh, manifests that in the as-of-right housing proposal, which would uh, sort of take zoning rights from the municipality along transit routes and build up to the province, which I think actually it's funny, like a lot of the NIMBY problems you, people can agree on until it's sort of like going through their backyard. It's so true, right? Um, it's human nature. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, if I had a nice backyard and, you know, building a subway like extension or an LRT through it, not a thing I would like. But I'm curious, as a former politician, you've like probably encountered personally some of the challenges uh, that can arise. And so I want to talk about another of the Aurea proposals, which is looking at sale of public or surplus land. Sometimes the frustration over this can be from NIMBYism, but uh, there can sometimes be also real frustration over the loss of community and or public space. And so what are some meaningful things that governments uh, at any level can do to assuage public concern? concerned over, you know, maybe an increasing necessity for a quicker pace of change when it comes to these kinds of issues? Yeah, look, you, you don't, this is an issue, I think, of, of not all but some, right? You don't have to take every piece of, you know, federally or provincially owned land and put it into housing, but you can make judicious decisions on, for example, is it near a major transit corridor? Is this an area of future population growth? Do we have the infrastructure in the ground to look at those properties? And I don't think we envision here that you're talking about, you know, wilderness areas. I think we're talking about, you know, buildings that will be underutilized, old sites that, um, you know, could be turned into housing. In New York City, for example, under a couple of mayors, they brought on 165,000 housing units in New York City by, by using government-owned land. And they also targeted not, you know, for the wealthiest individuals. They looked for middle class, aspiring middle class homes. They had long term lease of 99 years with developers to say, okay, we'll give you the land to develop on, but you have to make sure it's going to be affordable to the average citizen. So if a jam packed area like New York or Manhattan can do it, you know, surely in Toronto and Hamilton and Mississauga, we can find a way as well. Can, um, I, can I jump yeah, back yeah, on the, because on the, um, yeah. Chris Rodman really pointed around transit. So, you know, the previous McGinty and Wynn government, now the Ford government are making the right decision, investing in public transit. They're putting a lot of money into the ground, into LRT, subways, expansion of Go. This is a major positive development, and there's a lot of uh, agreement among the political parties that this is the right thing to do. Where we come in to say is great, we're putting billions of dollars into public transit, but it doesn't make sense to use taxpayers' dollars that way and then limit development to one or two stories along those routes. Just think when you're in Toronto and you go down the Danforth, right, you have two-story development on a major subway system. So we do believe that the province has a role here to say, let's develop along those lines. Number one, if you're building new transit or GO stations, why don't we build above them? And there are a lot of people who might say, hell, I'd love to live above a GO station. I don't have to bring the park and the boots into work every day or when you're going shopping for entertainment. So we're seeing progress on that front. But we also do believe that the province should look at uh, as you said, as of right zoning to say, maybe in big city areas, you know, six to eight stories. You get outside of the big city, you might go down to four stories. But surely if the taxpayer is investing in this transit infrastructure, then the province should say, we need to build along that. 
and have more densification and more options for people who want to use transit. It's environmentally friendly, and it's the right thing for the demand out there, particularly for starter homes and move-up homes. Could I maybe pick up a bit on the sort of infrastructure needed around development? So, you know, there's this tension around development charges, right? Uh, And maybe just for listeners, you know, some groups want development charges to be increased or, or at least held steady to pay for the critical infrastructure around development, like schools and roads and hospitals. Um, but uh, you've sort of called for the opposite, which is to encourage more supply to limit um, development charges. Can you sort of just talk to us a bit about that tension and sort of how you arrived at the position that you did? Yeah, there's a, a real inconsistency around development charges across municipalities. Some hold them under control and do put them in infrastructure. Others we feel are using it as a source of, of taxation and not using it to pay for growth, but to pay for services in general. And the province has a role to play as a check and balance and make sure that the rules are the same across the system. Because here's a problem in some areas in, in York Region, I believe, in our research, point out that some areas like York Region, where the development charge is $125,000 in some areas. So before they put a shovel in the ground to, to build you know, new, ta- new townhouses or whatever, that's the tax off the top. And who pays at the end of the day? It's the future homeowner. And when taxes at that level are pushing home ownership further and further out of reach of the next generation, we got a problem with that. And we've called for the province to try to take control. Uh, we actually are both uh, former uh, education, uh, and education was one of those development charges. And that one of my actually like most uh, visceral political memories was going up to uh, North York and like a community town hall. And like, there was a pro education development charge uh, group there. And their basic case was we are seeing these high rises go up. They're expensive high rises. We think that the people in those high rises have enough money to pay uh, for schools, but you're telling us we can't, you know, build a new school in our area. Um, and they sort of viewed education as, uh, or they viewed EDCs as basically a way uh, to meet a service uh, gap that they were seeing in their uh, in their community. So, if the answer is not sort of providing taxes, should it uh, is should like should it all be provided centrally by the province like um how how does you know community where growth is organic or sporadic you sort of guarantee a level of funding for the core infrastructure if, if you don't have sort of a mechanism built in where where development happens yeah look i think this is probably a pretty complex policy uh, approach on that depending on the area and and the government's uh, Build a More Homes, More Choices uh, Act, Bill 108, does allow for a number of these tools. So, you know, for example, if the government wanted to target, and, and rightly so, uh, more rental housing in the province, more purpose-built rentals, then allowing for development charges to be deferred uh, until the project is underway over a longer lifetime, we think that's good because the government should encourage us. We don't have enough rental. The vacancy rates in our big cities are so low that people are being frozen in their apartments because of lack of choice. And truly, let's not forget, there's a housing spectrum here too, right? So if somebody can't get into rental, that means maybe taking up a spot in social housing, government-assisted housing, and that means our most vulnerable will never get into the housing market to begin with. They're the ones who actually pay the price at the end of the day. You know, secondly, I think that uh, the government, should someone come to tax base? Yeah, I think part of that should come out of of tax base as well. You could look at sort of lifetime financing of water and sewer. There's a number of mechanisms that exist. So give municipalities that opportunity. The province could participate like it does in rail and, and highway transportation. But our overall our overall goal here is to, is to start waving the flag and say, look, 
we're in a crisis here where we are not developing the housing supply and that that we develop is really getting farther and farther of reach for whether it's immigrants, whether it's entrepreneurs, whether it's new Canadians. We have mortgage restrictions that are penalizing the next generation, the careful savers. There's just so much that's piling on. I'm sure the government's intentions were always good across the board, but there's so many restraints on housing supply. There's so many restraints now on getting a mortgage that we are at a crisis point of pushing people out of the housing market altogether. And you can see how that's building up in frustration from potential buyers out there. Mm-hmm. We've got to do something. We've got to act. The choices aren't easy, but we put them on the table, and I'm happy the government took eight out of ten of our ideas. Maybe picking up on that frustration, we spent um, a past episode with the Center for Equality Rights talking about the idea of housing as a human right, um, which has sort of picked up some steam in some political circles. The city of Toronto sort of embedded it in their recent plan. Um, So as a representative of sort of the group that sells housing, what do you think about sort of the idea of housing as a human right? Yeah, our approach has always been more practical. It's not been a rights-based approach and, you know, going through courts and litigation or adding this to the Human Rights Commission docket, right? Our our point of view is the solutions are are actually out there. They're not easy. There are going to be trade-offs, but let's actually start focusing on what's going to bring more housing across the spectrum, whether that's homeless shelters, whether that's rentals, we see a big need for, for starter homes. And then when the kids come along, the ability to move up and have room. So our focus is entirely on practical policy solutions that can get moving in these areas. You know, here's another one we put on the table, secondary suites. I referenced earlier the old bylaws in the 70s that municipalities have across the province as patchwork. But the benefit of secondary suites are the following. Like if you could rent out the, the basement apartment or above the garage, Number one, that helps the homeowner. They can pay down their mortgage about 22.5% faster. So that encourages homeownership with a revenue source. But secondly, that gives rental stock in every neighborhood, you know, across the city or town. So, so renters will have a lot more options in every neighborhood across our province. There's something that we could do to help out both renters and homeowners. It doesn't require us passing new laws. It's just a matter of getting rid of old bad ones. I'm curious, uh, and sort of picking up on that a little bit, one of the ideas that a right to housing, uh, you can look at it through like a, a litigation legal uh, lens. And then there's also um, what Alyssa Briarly was talking a little bit about was like from a planning lens. And we used to uh, hear in government this phrase, complete communities, like quite a bit. I'm, I'm curious if we're like engaged from uh, from the perspective of it, which I think like is, is kind of consensus that, you know, we should have good planning. Um, are there reasonable contours to how you, you know, build like a right to housing into, you know, what at the end of the day is still a market-based system? Can we guarantee culturally competent, appropriate family dwellings adjacent to transit for um, for everyone? Are there are there reasonable contours to that idea? Yeah, like what I'd be concerned about though, um, you know, it's, it's a... a an interesting principle to debate is the time and energy spent on that and then planners to interpret all of that. Look, I've been in, in the public affairs space for 25 years. I've never met a developer who doesn't want to make a buck. So you figure out, okay, where are our housing needs? We talked about a number of those. You know, how can we change the system to incentivize supply in that area? I talked earlier on a couple of times about more rental accommodations. If we want to have more missing middle homes, let's target policy changes to do that. That's a wonderful source of housing for first-time home buyers and also folks like my parents who are empty nesters that would free up a house for a new family because they want to stay close to the grandkids. So missing middle homes are good on both ends of the spectrum. We're strongly the belief, let's actually look at some old rules that are standing in the way of new housing as our focus instead of creating another brand 
of bureaucracy that, quite frankly, I think might might actually backfire and slow things down at the end of the day. So when I was reading the ORI proposal, the sort of different state of secondary dwellings was a thing that struck me as like, that actually is a really interesting idea, low-hanging fruit. It kind of backs you into that Airbnb debate a little bit. Um, and I'm curious... Uh, if you, has Ori done any thinking, uh, any uh, thoughts about this? There are a lot of people in the affordable housing space that are really concerned about Airbnb sort of sucking up a big section of the housing supply debate for people who might need those sort of smaller spaces. Um, so I'm curious for how you think, you know, a new disruptor like Airbnb fits into into this conversation. Yeah, so, I mean, because you can make arguments on both sides, right? That could also enable people to have a revenue stream to pay down the mortgage, bring housing supply on board. We haven't really delved into this. This has sort of been at a local level, and maybe our local boards get involved. It may be a different solution in urban areas than cottage country, for example. So we haven't gone a deep dive on that um, as much as we are following the issue. But I do think that there is plenty of room for innovative solutions, and I feel a gathering momentum both at the provincial and national level and generally at municipalities as well. Let me give some other examples of of other ideas. So co-ownership of housing, right? This is a new emerging model. It might make housing more affordable uh, for for younger people to co-own a property. There is a bill in the legislature by Lindsay Park, MPP for Oshawa, called the Golden Girls Act. Golden Girls is probably, this is one thing that was called network television. I don't know if you guys would be familiar <laughs> with the concept. But here, you know, here are unrelated seniors who are living together, and then they would rent out one of the, the bedrooms to a caregiver. Awesome solution, higher quality of life. They're not dependent on the public system. But there are old bylaws that prevented that, so a new law to encourage these types of co-living arrangements. Laneway housing, you know, it would be a wonderful solution in big parts of major urban areas like Toronto. I am fully convinced that there are a lot of solutions that are there. It just takes some political courage to get going. I'm feeling very optimistic as we begin 2020. I think the pendulum is swinging back towards housing supply and affordability. There's still a ways to go, but I will hold out as somebody who's been involved in the public sphere that ultimately if municipalities don't do the right thing, the province does play a role in making that happen because the risk is too great to lose our next generation because they can't find a place to call home. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to send a big thank you to Tim Hudak and the Ontario Real Estate Association for making Tim available for the show. They were wonderful to work with uh, leading up to the show and uh, really thought Tim's perspective was valuable on this topic. It's not one that I agree with every single part of, um, and I'm sure those of you listening uh, might be in the same boat, but what they're doing with their public policy is interesting, and if you want to see a really good example of how to um, position an agenda that is in the benefit of a membership um, or a particular segment or an organization and position it um, in the realm of the public interest and try to make that voice more about what the public is concerned about. I think Aurea is doing a really good job with that. So really enjoyed having them on Ontario Loud this week. Let us know what you think on Twitter at Ontario Loud or at Ontario Loud Mail at gmail.com. As always, Ontario Loud is brought to you by our volunteers, Aisha Anwar and Harmon Madidu, our research. Philip Askew does our recording engineer, although I mixed this episode, so if it sounds a little bit less good, it is because Philip's sure hand was not on the till. Ontario Loud is Sam Andrew, Alexi White, and myself, Chris Martin. We record on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the New Credit um, and want to honor and respect those treaties that are still alive today. 
We need to do more episodes about Indigenous rights, and we will have those on the docket in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, we will see you next week for a regular news pot. It's been a little while since Alexi, Sam, and I have sat around and picked through the headlines, and so we got that coming for you next week. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.